Hey, my name's Ken Russell. I'm a City of Miami Commissioner, and I'm here to help you better understand your local government. Hey guys, Miami Commissioner Ken Russell here. We are talking about coral reefs around Miami, Miami-Dade, out in our waterways and our, our ocean. What are we doing that's hurting them? What can we do to help them? Uh, we are here with Professor Baker. He is a PhD, a coral biologist, and he is going to educate me and us on things that we can do and things that they are doing, uh, but things that they can maybe do to partner with local government and the community that can give corals a better chance. Uh, Professor Baker, how are you? Very good. Thanks so much. Thanks for, thanks for having me. And it's a real pleasure to be able to uh, talk with you, Commissioner, about projects we're doing locally and uh, all the exciting stuff that we've got going on. So you're, you are local. You live in Coconut Grove. Is that right? That's right. And actually, out of the last 27 odd years, I've probably lived in Coconut Grove for about the last 21. So uh, this definitely feels like home to me. Does your work on coral biology focus on Miami or is, it, is this a global effort that you, you work on? So it's really been a global effort for most of my career, that's to say the last 25 years or so, but increasingly over the last uh, few years, it's become increasingly local as we've begun to realize that, uh, you know, efforts to save uh, Miami-Dade's coral reefs are really ramping up and there are actual things that we can do that will make a difference and, and even things that we can research here locally that could have global relevance. And this gives us a great opportunity to try some new methods, some new interventions that will help increase the resilience of uh, Florida's and Miami's coral reefs that could be could be useful, you know, Caribbean wide and even and even globally. So it's really exciting. Got it. And where do you work exactly so that our listeners understand exactly who your who your mission is for? Yeah, so I'm at the University of Miami. Uh, I'm out at the Rosenthal School, which is uh, over on Virginia Key, just off of downtown Miami. And most of the work that we're doing these days are really extremely local. These are reefs off of uh, Key Biscayne, um, places called Emerald Reef, Rainbow Reef. These are sort of three, four miles offshore of Key Biscayne. And also uh, a fair amount of work off uh, Miami Beach at some of the coral communities and, and reefs that are there. And really looking at how we can restore these reefs, how we can bring back uh, actively growing corals into these areas. And really what my sort of research is, is how do we make the corals that we're going to restore to these areas more resilient than the ones we previously lost? You know, we know that corals in this area are being threatened by increasingly severe uh, stressors, everything from climate change to water quality to uh, physical destruction. And the idea is not to just restore these reefs with corals that are sort of going to die the next time we get a warm summer, but really try to build out their resilience so that we're really building for the future and not just sort of planting out the next set of victims, so to speak. Got it. So for, for our residents to better understand where the corals are in our area, if you could fly up and look down at a map of Biscayne Bay and Miami Beach and the coastline and, and on down below, down south, where, where is, I mean, is, this, is there a massive reef that we picture like the Great Barrier Reef off the coastline or are these small islands of coral habitats that are throughout our bay? Where, where, where do we find the most corals? In our yeah, area? that's a great question. It, it depends. So if the, the reef proper, the sort of the structure of the Florida Keys reefs uh, sort of ends right off the southern tip of Key Biscayne, but that doesn't mean to say that we don't find corals uh, uh, that are actually uh, still building large colonies and can be pretty long-lived uh, at points further north there. In fact, there are 
coral colonies that stretch all the way up through Miami-Dade County, up into Broward County, and up into Martin County, and even and even beyond. Um, and those corals uh, can be uh, relatively abundant and can actually be, you know, uh, important for these local systems. At the same time, this is mainly offshore of Miami-Dade, sort of three, two, three miles offshore. But at the same time, there's a lot of corals in inshore environments that we're also really interested in. This is areas of Biscayne Bay, um, some of the seawalls and causeways and sort of uh, boulder communities that you often see if you're sort of driving out to say Miami Beach, you'll see that there's a lot of artificial shorelines and a lot of those shorelines are actually home to corals too. And we actually think that those corals, you know, which live in these interesting environments um, are actually possibly tougher than your average coral. And uh, the idea is to sort of learn something from those corals to help, uh, help the rest of the reef survive. Got it. So there is an ecosystem of corals in the bay, uh, in, the, in, the, in the channel and government cut. Um, all of these areas, uh, they have their own pockets of corals that are, that are surviving and thriving despite, uh, as you said, the, the, the additional intensity that they deal with. So they might actually be more resilient than some of the corals who have it easy off the coast. Right. That's right. That. And so that's why it's really, really important to make sure that we take extra steps to protect those corals um, because they could be sources of sort of additional resilience that, you know, unless we protect them from the kinds of uh, stresses that they face, whether it's sort of dredging or poor water quality coming from um, sort of terrestrial sources, unless we protect them, uh, we won't have that genetic stock available to help, uh, help rebuild some of these reefs offshore. So how, how does the, the dredging and the runoff, how does that affect them in a negative way? So, you know, dredging, you know, causes a lot of um, sediment in the water and, and a lot of turbidity. So basically, as you, as you cut through the rock and cut through the, 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 the bottom of the ocean there to cut or enlarge your, your dredging channel, your shipping channel, you actually tend to stir up a lot of sediment into the water column. And that sediment can be really, really fine. Uh, which means that it takes a long time to settle out. And so as you're dredging, you can get dredging plumes that release a lot of sediment into the water column. And as we've seen throughout the Port of Miami dredging project, a lot of that sediment settles out eventually from the water column over a really large area and can affect a really large section of the reef there. Um, so, you know, it, for you know, activities like that, where we, there are steps that we can take to really minimize those efforts, we really should be taking those efforts to, to protect these corals and, and ensure that they're available for the future. So for, for the dredging, it sounds like it's about silting that settles on top of the coral. And that's correct. And make, makes it difficult yeah. for them. What about the runoff that comes from the streets uh, in the city of Miami, over 300 stormwater outfalls that come from our streets? What effect can they have on, on coral? In, in other areas, so for example, down in the Florida Keys where nutrients are, are also a, a problem, there's been a lot of work looking at the effects of nutrient pollution on corals and showing that as you add nutrients to the waters around coral reefs, you tend to foster, promote the growth of seaweeds and you also reduce the water quality and the, and the light attenuation for corals. Corals are animals, but they also use sunlight energy to build and grow their skeletons. So if you start to block out sunlight, you actually meet, you actually reduce their energy um, capabilities and they grow more slowly and, and are less able to sort of fight off disease. And at the same time, if you're adding nutrients, um, you're also um, increasing the competition that these corals have with seaweeds that are kind of competing with them for space. So the combination of high nutrients and sort of low light penetration can cause problems for corals. And 
and you know again cause them to suffer and that's quite independent of other things that can often be accompanying uh, these water sources uh, whether it's pesticides or pollutants or, or other chemicals that are coming off the land and, and impacting these corals and that's actually something that we're interested in looking at as sort of uh, signatures of uh, terrestrial input to some of these inshore corals. Got it. So from a policy perspective, and what I'm hoping to gain from this, I enjoy writing legislation that has a positive effect. But if I don't have the science backing behind the legislation, even if I can find the politics to get the votes and we pass it, it may not have the right effect or may even have an unintended negative effect. A few of the legislative items we've been able to pass over this last year to two years here, we were able to ban fertilizer use in the rainy months. So this is June through September. We could not ban the sale of fertilizers at the commercial level through preemption by the state, but we were able to create a moratorium on use, uh, both commercial and private, from June to September. That supposedly should keep a lot of the nutrients out of the water during the rainy season. It gets just run off into the gutter. And then throughout the year, you're not allowed to apply fertilizers within 15 feet of a water body. Mm -hmm. uh, so even if you've got your roses right there next to the bay, you, you, you got to be 15 feet away from the water. So I assume that one should have a good effect if followed. Yeah, I agree. You know, I'd be the first to say that, the, you know, the reasons why we need to be doing it is not just for corals. It's the whole ecosystem of the bay, right, which is the seagrass beds, the fish, the, 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 the everything there that really makes the bay so special. You know, the bay is recognized to be really a, a benefit to Miami and, and kind of a, a fundamental sort of feature, you know an iconic part of, of Miami really, and keeping those waters clean and sort of swimmable, keeping them algal bloom free and having corals in them where, you know, indicating that the, the water quality is high enough to support those corals. This is all kind of part of the holistic, you know, picture that we really need to try to promote ecosystem health versus sort of focusing too much on individual components. It's about keeping, keeping the whole system healthy. So I was, I was also able to pass a ban on glyphosate use with the chemical in Roundup by government. We had about 5,000 gallons a year going into the water through our, our Department of uh, Public Works. So they would spray it on the medians and sidewalks and then it would run out. You didn't mention herbicides. You mentioned the nutrient side of things and the silting side of things. Do herbicides also have a negative effect on corals? Yeah, they can do. Um, so there's there are various types of herbicides that are known to have um, an impact on corals. They can cause coral bleaching, which is a sort of the process whereby corals turn white in a sort of a stress response. Um, so they, the, you know, these these chemicals are known to have negative negative impacts. And again, you know, combined with all of the other stresses that Florida's coral reefs face, because it's not just the corals in the bay. Obviously, all of this water makes its way out into the open ocean, where we have even more corals and, and more reefs. So there are downstream impacts too. All of these systems are being impacted by multiple stresses, whether it's climate change, coral diseases, which are probably also exacerbated by poor water quality, uh, and you know direct physical impacts like dredging. So anything we can do to sort of remove these additional straws on the camel's back uh, to sort of improve the overall health uh, increases the chance that these systems are going to be resilient for the future. Professor, there's maybe something I didn't understand correctly. You said coral bleaching is a, is a stress reaction. Isn't coral bleaching just a dead coral? Like, isn't that the skeleton that's left after a coral goes? No. Um, so it, this is actually an area of research that I, I've really focused on for the last uh, couple of decades. Coral bleaching is the process whereby these tiny symbiotic algae that live inside the coral and are partly responsible for giving its coloration, where the, that symbiosis, that partnership breaks down because the coral gets stressed out and it spits these algae out through the mouths of the coral polyps. 
And as those algae are lost, the coral loses its coloration. And so what you're seeing is the bare coral skeleton through kind of a translucent coral tissue, a veneer of tissue that sits over the coral surface, but the coral is not dead. And in fact, if conditions can return to normal, a bleached coral will recover its pigmentation, it'll survive, and it'll continue to build reefs. So bleaching is reversible. Misconception. I learned something new. Yeah. And it's super interesting because, you know, in some situations, we find that corals that bleach and recover um, occasionally change the types of symbiotic algae that they have inside them in favor of certain types of algae that are more stress tolerant. So in, in, my, in my lab at the University of Miami, we've done a lot of research on how we can manipulate this symbiosis to promote these stress tolerant algae to sort of create varieties of corals that are more thermally tolerant and more stress tolerant. Um, and that's been a big focus for us over the last few years. Very good. Um, the final piece of legislation that we were able to successfully pass most recently was a change to our city code that would allow us to shut down construction sites if they were not containing their construction debris on site. If it was silting out into the bay and creating a plume of silt, we could trace that back through our, both our public works department and our code enforcement department and actually shut down that construction site. We didn't have that ability uh, before, but we've seen a, a huge response. There's actually been a positive response from the construction industry because they too believe this is environmental crime. Um, and they are supportive of us holding the bad actors accountable, uh, which is a, a positive but surprising response from the industry. And we've actually issued several citations and notices of violation and stop work orders that have actually led to them hopefully changing their behavior, but certainly they have to clean it up before they can open back up. So that certainly speaks to the silting issue uh, that you had mentioned. Is there anything from a policy perspective or a legislative perspective that you can think of that hasn't been done, whether it's at a local, state, or federal level, that would help with restoration of corals and, and slowing down the damage done to corals? There is. So first of all, I'll just say that the activity that you just described, the legislative activity, is really important because it's about collective action. Corals suffer, ecosystems suffer, because of small activities that combine on top of one another and eventually become a big problem. And it's always really easy to think that one's individual activities or one little thing is not going to have really a measurable difference on the system as a whole. And it's easy to fall into that mentality as an excuse to do nothing about, you know, an individual project because the, you know, the incremental effect is so small. But obviously, every time we do that, it's multiplied by a thousand or ten thousand. Everybody's actions all add up. And so, you know, we, we really have to try to, you know, enforce these small actions in order to have a, a collective sum total action that's going to be significant. And I think that's great. As for other things that we could be doing, one activity that I think we need to sort of work on at the state level, federal level, is that increasingly we're recognizing that coral reef ecosystems are, are systems in themselves. They're connected uh, across county lines. They're connected across international lines. And I think the coral reef conservation and restoration community is, is increasingly realizing that in order to be effective locally, we have to cooperate and work internationally. And so one of the projects that we're working on right now is actually working in collaboration with the Bahamian government and potentially other international partners to actually share our corals and to use the genetic diversity that we have as a, as a community, Bahamian coral reefs, Floridian coral reefs, possibly Mexican coral reefs, and understanding that all of the diverse types of corals that are on these reefs can collectively reinforce one another. And so for the first time, we're starting to explore 
the idea of coral exchanges where we may uh, provide some corals to the Bahamas and they may provide some to us. And we may try to actually selectively breed those corals with one another to produce um, offspring that have the qualities of both parents because that diversity basically increases the resilience of the whole system. And I'm a great believer that that diversity increases resilience in the biological context and in other contexts too. And I think it's really interesting that the coral reef community has sort of is reaching the same conclusion and that we're starting to form these international partnerships to, to essentially selectively breed corals uh, by looking for mothers and fathers out there, coral mothers and fathers that are going to produce the toughest, most resilient um, offspring that we can use to restore reefs and, and ensure that they have the best chance of surviving the next few decades. Well, that sounds like a metaphor for our hopes for humanity. Diversity strengthens mm -hmm. us all. Yeah. So that's interesting. So would that be official partnerships between the international governments that is necessary to accomplish that? Or is that something that's happening on the education side of things through? No, it's, it's really the former. It's international collaborations between governments, getting you know memorandum of understanding between uh, state and federal governments and with some of these international governments. And that's something that we're working on right now. In fact, we have a, we have a grant from NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, to explore this very idea with the government of the Bahamas. And the idea is we can bring um, some of these corals in and try to breed them against our Florida stock. And at the same time, uh, collaborate with the government of the Bahamas. They have certain coral species that they're in need of that we actually have in abundance in Florida. So there's a give and take, it's an exchange. We will help them with certain species that they're having problems with, and they will help us with certain species that we're having problems with. And by sort of reinforcing the systems, we, we end up with a much more resilient kind of net product. Interesting. Well, at a state and federal level, it's a little out of my jurisdiction as a city commissioner, but we could certainly pass a resolution urging the state and federal government to take on these relationships and maybe closer to home. And from no selfish interests of my own, we could create a sister city relationship with Bimini that I would absolutely need to lead <laughs> the research trips for. Yeah, that's very interesting, too, because some of the candidate corals that we're looking at potentially introducing for this selective breeding program actually come from Bimini. So that, that would be great. And, you know, it's worth saying, too, that if this project is successful and we, we, we are able to do this, Miami-Dade will be pretty much the first place that this has ever been uh, successfully attempted. And then, you know, we use these, these offspring to introduce them onto our reef. So it will be kind of a, kind of a first. Um, so that's it'll fantastic. be exciting if, if we can make that happen. Is there any place that the public can follow along with your work and learn about what you're doing and, and support you? Yeah, so obviously we've got a website uh, at the University of Miami. If you look for the Coral Reef Futures Lab and do a search on that, either on Google, you'll find us. On Facebook, you'll find us. On Twitter and Instagram, you'll find us. And, and there's some great images there. I have a great set of individuals in my lab that, that are providing content for those platforms all the time, updating viewers, followers on experiments that we're doing, activities that are going on. And it's, it's fun and very visual. So I highly encourage the, the, any of those platforms for work. Well, that's excellent. Professor Baker, I really appreciate your time and your, your sharing of knowledge. What my hope is that my residents learn more about the things that we're working on so that they will support me and the legislation that hopefully supports you and the efforts for our corals and our waterways. So thank you very much for what you do. You're most welcome. Anytime, anytime I can help, uh, I'm, I'm more than happy to.